Welcome to today's episode of Fire in the Belly. This is where we get to hear some pretty inspiring stories from some amazing people. You know, it's always an absolute pleasure to sit down, take time out and have a warts and all conversation about their journey. I'm always intrigued by what it's taken for people to get to where they are today. And hopefully in this interview, we get to hear some more about that. From this, my mission is to help people to find their own fire in their belly. And from that, to live the mightiest version of you. So without further ado, sit back, relax, and enjoy today's guest. Success is a process, not an event. Hello, and welcome to the Fire in the Belly show. Today, we'll have myself, Mighty Pete, and we have the Bill Fairman. Good afternoon to you. Good day to you, sir. Hi, Pete. Thank you so much for having me on. Listen, thanks very much for coming on. So we, we had a bit of a false start, so we're getting this opportunity to do it again. So it's awesome to have you on the show. Thanks very much for coming on. So, Bill, sure. tell us, who are you? What are you doing? Where are you from? Well, as you said earlier, I am the Bill Fairman, the only one that I know of. Uh, I am located in the Charlotte, North Carolina market in the U.S. And our business is financing real estate investors that are buying property at a discount, typically because they're distressed. They will add value to them typically by constructing uh, updates and then either reselling them or holding them for uh, future rental properties. And uh, we, we have a fund where investors can invest into that fund. We use that money to make loans with, and it's a nice little ecosystem. Nice. D- does that essentially make you the bank? Uh, yes, it does. <laughs> nice. I just don't have the same type of bank regulations that your typical bank does. Cause it, it, it's called the private money sector. Yeah, And there's a lot of institutional uh, investors that are getting into that space now. As you're probably aware, uh, savings rates aren't very good because interest rates are pretty low. And, and that's worldwide. There are some countries that have negative interest rates. You're basically paying them to store your money, uh, like having self-storage for your, do- uh, you know, your, your, <laughs> your cash. It's not really fair. Uh, But that said, everybody is looking for yield and insurance companies, big hedge funds. They're, they're no different. They, they need to get that yield as well. And they're getting into this space because it is um, uh, lucrative. It's approaching double digit returns versus, you know, if your, your money's sitting over in some sort of, treasury bond or sitting in a bank with a savings account, you're, you're lucky to get a (laughs) percent. So breaking it down for people. So there's, there's a a portion of the population has money that's savings they built up through time or whatever, through earnings, through profit, through whatever. So they have the money. They don't necessarily, they, they have it extra or spare they want to get a decent return on it and then on the other side there's those that need the money for building a project or they need money to 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 build a building to then be able to sell it at a, an increased value right so it, it is in a, sort of in exchange a, a need versus a want right well yes and your, your typical bank i've been in the mortgage business 30 some odd years. And you're just judging risk on uh, these projects. 
the risk of getting paid back and then getting paid back in a timely manner. Um, so your typical acquisition with a construction component is a risky uh, property transaction. Your typical, we'll, we'll call it your the least risky mortgage loan out there is a single family residence in a subdivision with 2.5 kids playing in the yard. And anytime you get outside of that, either on the downside or the upside of that stream, you're, you're adding risk. And what we do is we provide money to people that are finding a property that's probably not habitable, or if it is habitable, it is so outdated that it's going to be difficult to sell. So when you make a loan like that and you have to turn around and take the property back because uh, that person didn't pay you uh, as a bank, you're kind of stuck with a property that you can't sell as quickly, or you're going to have to put extra money in it, or you're going to have to pay other people to put extra um, work into it. So it, it's considered risky. However, if you control it properly and you uh, get the right returns, most people are going to do the right thing and they're going to make payments. No one ever goes into a loan saying, I'm just getting this loan. So I won't make any payments and then lose what I did. <laughs> it's typically, you know, sickness or some kind of, uh, catastrophic thing that happens that causes them. And it could be market forces too. Uh, markets change. We've been in a, probably a 15 year bull market when it comes to real estate, uh, right now. Um, and there's a lot of young adults who have never seen a down market. Um, but it happens. <laughs> I, I want people to know that markets are secular. <laughs> We've just been on a really good run for, for a while. Uh, anyway, sorry. And let me get back to uh, what I was talking. Well, that's really interesting. Cause I mean, my, I have a bit of property myself, so it's, it's interesting. I mean, do you follow a, a particular market cycle? Cause I know some people talk about a 17 or 21 year cycle that we go through boom bust. We go through, I mean, do you, do you follow that sort of mindset or where do you set on it? <laughs> Well, for me, there's always going to be, uh, it's not necessarily booms and bust cycles in, in real estate. It's ups and downs. <laughs> and over since 19, since the 1950s, uh, in the U S home prices have never gone down except for in specific markets. Real estate is always specific to a market. There could be an issue in a town where everybody's leaving. Uh, and then those prices will go down. But for the most part, prices on homes have not declined except for during the 2008 uh, financial crunch. And it wasn't because typically your cycles in real estate are uh, interest rate driven. Rates go up, then prices can't rise as quickly because you have to sell your property at a little bit less than what you wanted to list it for because you need to sell it quicker. It doesn't mean prices are going down. Uh, the 2008 was an anomaly. That's the only time prices have gone down nationally. Um, and like I said, that real estate is local. So that could happen. But for the most part, 
it always goes up. The rate of growth can slow and pick up. And right now we're in a, um, you know, a boom. It's slowing down slightly because it's starting to become unaffordable. However, you know, you got rates still under four. When I bought my first house, Jimmy Carter was president and my FHA, which is a government back loan, my rate was 14 and a half percent. So people still buy homes when rates are high. Hmm. But at the same time, that house I bought was only $23,500. Good luck trying to find a house for that price now. Um, But yeah, you always prepare. Um, One of the things that we do with our business is that we are regional. So we understand our market where we are. We're not trying to be a national company. We uh, like our footprint. We understand our footprint. And when when things change, we make adjustments. That's the great thing about being smallish is that uh, we're not like the big cruise ship that takes a couple of days to turn it around. We, we, We can be very nimble and take care of market situations as, as they come up. So we, we've been, we've had a good benefit there. Do you, out of interest, I mean, do you have, uh, as a funder, I mean, do you have certain caps? Because I know here, I'm just trying to think, like we have like bonds and mini bonds and things like that that have certain caps that you go into. I mean, is that this case over in America where you can only fund a certain amount in, in one pot and then you have to sort of multiply the pots thereafter? Well, <sighs> We have an internal rule that we will never go more than 10% of our total portfolio on one project or one individual or one company. So no one will ever have more than 10% of what we can fund. And and we do that because if if they do default, then it puts a strain on your on your fund. I mean, you have to do that with uh, anything that you do. Well, what I'm hearing is this is this is risk management really at its finest, right? You're the the risks that you can see is the risks you can't see. You're taking a judgment call on the person, on the company, on the land, on the building. So yes. you're just managing and mitigating it the best you can. So nothing's risk free. It's just yeah, no. There's there's never anything risk free. <laughs> Real estate though in, in uh, the U.S. has been pretty stable, like I said, since the fifties. There's only so much land. I think we talked about this before. There's, there's only so much land available. Um, God does make land. I I know people think that God's not making any more, but we do have volcanoes that eventually turn into usable land, but you're not going to be able to use it for a while. (laughs) So uh, there, there is a, a limit. Now, one of the things that we use and we call it an insurance policy for ourselves um, we're, we're really big into masterminds, uh, because as small business people, it's nice to have that, uh, board of directors that you can count on, that you can throw out ideas out and, and have people that have been there, done that, uh, to say, yeah, that's a good idea, but it's the stupidest thing I've ever heard you say. It's a, <laughs> it's okay to get that kind of feedback because some, you know, you don't want to be surrounded by a bunch of yes people. Uh, but we're fortunate that we're part of a real estate mastermind of some of the top real estate investors throughout the country. And because we're in located in the Southeast, uh, most of our real estate investor friends that are on 
you know, the West Coast, uh, New York, uh, stuff usually happens to them first. So it's uh, nice, <laughs> nice to see that. And then we can also prepare uh, instead of reacting, uh, you know, we're, we're going to um, be in a place to kind of head this off before it gets to us. I mean, that is the beauty of a mastermind, right? You know, or any sort of peer group that you share your challenges with a view of saying, well, listen, this happened and this is what we had to do. And as you say, then you can go preventative instead of reactive, right? It's the difference yep. between the two and, and therefore hopefully head it off before it even happens, right? Yeah. The, the thing you have to be careful about with a mastermind is that you, number one, if somebody presents you with a way to do something, don't try and reinvent it. Just do it the way they're doing it because it's successful. And number two, don't try to, uh, sometimes you get guilty of being that, uh, shiny object syndrome thing where, Oh yeah, this is a great way to do it. We're going to stop doing what we're doing and do this now. <laughs> it's real easy to fall into that trap. If it doesn't take you out of your core business, uh, and then you can implement it, um, you know, for you and, and you can take what they're doing, extrapolate what might work for you and, and then take that. There's too many people that'll jump into a mastermind and try and implement everything they hear. And, uh, you just, you just can't do that. Uh, but there, it's seriously valuable content that you get. And we're in five different masterminds. We're actually going to start cutting back because we, we travel too much. Uh, to these different masterminds, but they're, they're all focused on different parts of your business. Can you give us an example of that? Cause that's super interesting. That's, you know, that maybe different masterminds fulfill different needs or benefits for the business. Well, uh, I told you about the real estate focused. Uh, we're in one that helps us raise capital. We're, we're in a mastermind that, um, is real estate based, but the host of the mastermind is a, uh, retired dentist and he's helping other dentists and private practice, uh, professionals to take that active income from their business and replace it with passive income through real estate. And as a, you know, real estate provider, I'm considered the, uh, they call them trusted advisors. So we're advising them on how to uh, put their money to work. And we're just one of many uh, there. He has people from all different spaces in the real estate uh, space and we're teaching them. However, being part of those groups, uh, I, I still have a group of my peers there as well as very successful private practice physicians. It also lifts your personal and, and business game as well, because you know, they've been, they're successful in business and we can all learn from them as well. I have another mastermind that I'm involved in that is more of a CEO type of a, a mastermind that also is focused on marketing. And then we have a, a, a local mastermind here, which is just local real estate investors that uh, we tried to just help out essentially in a real estate uh, meetup group. But these are more high level uh, people locally that, uh, you know, we, we share our experiences with and help each other with, with their businesses. Uh, I have uh, another one that I actually haven't started yet <laughs> that I'm getting ready to go to, 
to uh, check this one out. And it's some friends from some other masterminds that have uh, put a group together as well. Again, you, you have to be, <clears throat> excuse me, you, you, you have to be somewhat picky with your time. And if, if you go to one, that's not a good fit, then, then get out. Um, don't go to a mastermind where you're the smartest person in the room because you're not getting any benefit from it. And the point of going to a mastermind is to uh, give and then receive as well. Yeah. Hope that's helpful. It is. I mean, that, that's the thing that and I'm just wondering is, is it with businesses, especially where we don't have large offices, we don't have the same in-house networking, right? So it is a form of networking. It's a form of education. It's also a form of marketing your business at the same time. So it's all those things wrapped up together, right? But it, it, it's going to take time. It's going to take miles or it's going to take commitment or whatever, sure. right, to, to do that. But it, it's a multifold benefit if you get it right. Well, I can tell you that two, at least two of the masterminds that uh, we're members of, we, we not only go there to you know raise our game, uh, but we do commerce with each other. It's, uh, it's not a competition. We, we can help each other. Um, it's a whole lot easier to raise capital amongst a group of folks that know what they're doing versus trying to do it on your own. Yeah. Uh, for example, uh, if you're trying to purchase, uh, say, a, a large multifamily uh, existing project, and you're trying to get it financed. Uh, credit unions in, in the United States will do multifamily financing, but a credit union will not do it. Three or four credit unions will get together and uh, pool their, their funds and have a piece of each lo of the loan. Each of them will have a piece of it. And that's how they compete with the, the larger institutional banks. They will just all get together and fractionalize the loan. And, and that's kind of what you're doing with these groups. You're, you're, you're fractionalizing the risk. That's I'm just curious. I suppose like with a, a pension fund or the likes, I mean, they, they do different investment class, right? So in, in a fund, you'll get a mixture of some super high risk, some really sort of slow, boring, super regular, super low risk or as low as it sure. can be. Right. So, that that's that's part of it too, right? Having that cocktail that has a mixture of the highs and the lows all built into one. Yeah, that's the point of being diversified. You have uh, a little bit of high risk, um, mostly low risk, and then some medium risk. It's funny you mentioned the pension funds uh, recently in the Wall Street Journal. Someone and I can't remember their name uh, offhand, but wrote an article about some pension funds that are are starting to get into my space. Uh, they're investing in the private placement real estate uh, piece because they can't get the yield they need to um, <laughs> keep up with the um, promises that they have already made to the pensioners. <laughs> so they're, they're having to do more and more uh, risky in, well, what they consider risky investments based on their track record because they can't, they can't get the yield they need to, to pay out the money that they've already guaranteed. Uh, so there's going to be an, I think you're going to see 
in some cases, especially if they're investing in riskier stock market stuff, you're, you're going to see some pension funds that are going to have to be bailed out uh, by the government. That's the next thing that's coming, in my opinion. If they start, I think if they start investing in uh, smart real estate investments, and what I mean by smart is cash flowing assets, typically residential, because in any economy, you need two things, food and shelter. And as long as you're in the shelter business, uh, you're going to be relatively safe because people always need a place to live. Uh, but if you start investing in higher risk stock market stuff, you got no backstop. There's no uh, solid asset to back up that investment. There's one thing, here's a quote I learned in the mastermind that has all the dentists in it. The house doesn't care how much it's worth. As long as it's cash flowing, the whole reason you bought the house is for cash flow. If the house is worth 50,000 less than it was a month ago, the rent's not going down. The rent typically is going up if values are dropping anyway. Um, so it doesn't matter what the house is worth. It's, it matters the, about the income that it produces. So even if you do have a downturn, uh, historically, rents are not going down. They're still going to continue to go up. It's so true, isn't it? I mean, that it's worth what it's worth on, on the day of sale. And if you're not going to sell it, then what's the point in talking about it, right? It's vanity thereafter. Well, during the crash, and I'm going to get to the story about what happened to myself and my business partner during the crash. But during the crash, um, just before the crash, people were over leveraged in their properties. They had these loans that were... You could get a hundred percent, sometimes up to a hundred and twenty-five percent of the value of your house uh, in, in a loan. So, nice new house and a new it, car, right? Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, it sounded great. You could get a loan against your house, and then it's tax deductible. It's stretched out for thirty years, and you go buy a new car that lasts about five. <laughs> uh, and, you know, your payments would be next to nothing, but you're buying a depreciating asset with a long-term loan. That doesn't make a lot of sense. Uh, but they never teach financing in, in schools here. So a lot of people didn't know. So when the crash did happen, you know, values dropped and mainly values dropped because people were uh, trying to sell their home because maybe they got a change in job. They had to move. Uh, they couldn't sell their home. And they didn't want to be absentee landlords or they got behind in their payments and they couldn't make up for it and they couldn't sell it to get out from under it. They'd have to bring too much money to the table with them. Um, that's not going to happen right now. We have a ton of equity in, in homes because values have gone up and the mortgage loans that we have now for the consumer are very hard to get. I know the, uh, the dentist that I talked to, uh, yeah, you know, th these are very successful people that do several million a year in revenue. And yet, you know, it's like they have to get a blood test and uh, all kind of stuff just to get a loan. 
<laughs> so, you know, they're tough when these people are struggling to get mortgage loans. Um, and that's why a lot of people are turning to the private sector. It, it's, it's not as uh, stringent. A at the same time, it's, it's typically a, uh, com considered a commercial loan because you're only lending to a legal entity, not to a, an individual. So it doesn't come under the consumer uh, financing rules. Um, this is why we're not going to see a, a crash, as it were, in real estate. I know people are concerned about a real estate bubble, and I, I don't see that. We're, we're still way behind in constructing residential properties. Uh, like I said before, people still need a place to live, even if they're behind, and they all become rental properties. People still need uh, a place to live, and that's going to continue to keep prices in residential property fairly uh, strong. Um, I don't know about where you live, Pete, but People won't get rid of their stuff here. <laughs> Self-storage is really, really popular here. Uh, you, you either become emotionally attached to your $500 worth of stuff and you have to, and you'll spend $200 a month for five years to store it. If it's really important, you're going to have it heated and air conditioned because you don't want it to be uncomfortable while you're storing it. <laughs> So the self-storage business is uh, uh, really popular here as well. So those are uh, really the three types of properties. If you're going to invest in real estate, uh, you want to be in single family, multifamily, and self-storage. Uh, you could get into light industrial with warehouse with all the e-commerce going on. Um, th those are good investments. However, I caution you. You're, you're talking about uh, one property that's going to be used for one thing unless you completely redevelop it. And uh, those tend to be risky because if you ended up taking it back, you're taking it back typically from the person that was operating a business, which means you're not getting any rent. And then you have to find another business that, that needs warehouse space. And <clears throat> they're not, you know, out there banging the doors down to, to, to rent. It, it, it reminds me of a gas station. If you have a gas station that goes out of business, how many people are going to go out and buy a new gas station somewhere or a fast food restaurant? Uh, those, those buildings uh, are going to sit out there for a while and you're going to have to continually uh, lower the price until you get someone to buy it. Um, so those are all risky type of properties. The least risky are the ones I just went over, and those are great to invest in. It doesn't mean you have to buy them yourself. There are funds that you can invest in that do all that work for you, and you're able to either own a piece of those properties, or you could get into a fund where a lender is uh, making loans on them, and you're still getting a return from those, those same types of properties. So there's a lot of ways uh, people can invest in it without actually having to own them. Is there um, a guideline for returns versus risk, obviously, but I mean, is there a sort of a general ballpark that people typically would be looking at with these funds? Well, th these always change based on market conditions, obviously, sure. but currently you can get returns in the 20, 21% range uh, owning 
property that what we call value add property, where uh, an operator is going in and buying, say, a multifamily property that is distressed, it needs to be fixed up, and then rents will go up over time. And then after a certain period of time, um, you're going to have a, a nice upsell. You could probably sell it for almost twice what you paid for it. Um, however, one of the things that COVID taught us is that the value of a property isn't always going to end up what you projected. So, uh, for example, hospitality and retail space, even office space, if you were in, in that sector before COVID, <clears throat> you were almost guaranteed to make a certain amount of money, but then you had to turn around and reevaluate those spaces because no one was going to the office. No one was going to hotels. <laughs> um, and you have to be careful of investments that promise you a certain amount at the end uh, based on projections of what this property is going to be worth five or seven years from now. Uh, I, for me, the safest funds are the ones that just pay you a profit as they go along. They're, they're not um, promising you a certain uh, amount that may or may not happen at the end. Hmm. Does that make sense? Um, yeah. There's, a, there's, an, there's an expression I once heard from, from a guy, and they used to say it was, you know, and it's a bit like in a business, they say, you know, revenue is sanity, profit is, what is it? Yeah, revenue is sanity and, and profit is, is vanity, I think it was. I've probably totally butchered that, but it's, it's similar right. in the property when people are saying, yeah, this is going to be worth X, but then right. it doesn't work as a, as a model just from the day to day in terms of rent roll, in terms of return, you know, in terms of all this. So you're banking on something and, and there's, you know, the lowest common denominator is that you need the value to go up. It makes right. no money until that magic uplift happens. Well, then that's crazy, right? Cause you're, you're sort of wishing on the, wishing on a star that may or may not ever fall. Whereas at least if you're making money as you go along, that's a, you know, that's compounding, right? Yeah. But you know, historically those returns are possible, hmm. but you can't control market uh, forces. Um, you do know that there is a guarantee of a, at least a spread of a, of an income, uh, something that has been continuing and going on. Uh, if you're starting a brand brand new development, there is no income for the first three, four years. So you're going to have to, you know, it, it, it's kind of a, a faith thing here. You're, you're assuming that the operator uh, knows what they're doing. Um, if you're doing your due diligence and that operator has a good track record, that's something to, to go for. But like they always say in the disclaimers, uh, uh, future results uh, are not guaranteed by, uh, what is that? Um, current results are no guarantee of future. <laughs> future performance. <laughs> that happens. And listen, even in, yeah. even in businesses that you're investing in uh, with, with real estate that is income, there's no guarantee that you're going to get that same income. There may be a time where you have to lower the, the rates uh, in order to stay competitive. Um, but, at least, you know, uh, safety wise, uh, and it depends on where you are too, in your investing. If you're fairly young, 
you got plenty of time to make up for, for down times. Uh, so it's okay to be a little bit more risky and swing for the fences. But when you're, you know, getting closer to uh, retirement time, uh, you, you can't really afford to take a hit because uh, you don't have that much time left. <laughs> and I, I hate that we've been misled into uh, thinking that you're supposed to save up and have a certain nest egg. And then at the point you retire, you're hoping that you die before you run out of money. <laughs> it should never be that way. You should be able to uh, save up with, with assets that are producing an income and let your money work for you where your assets uh, either go up in value while still giving you an income or they don't, you're not taking money from principal. You're earning money from that principal. You're, but you're not taking any money from it. That's the way it should. And unfortunately they've taught us all about retirement that you save up this big nest egg. And then when you get to a certain point, then you can start, you know, deducting from it. And then eventually you'll run out of it. <laughs> That's crazy, right? And that's really, <clears throat> real estate is a solid way of, of doing that. And, and before I forget, I, I want to tell you why, why I'm so passionate about teaching people how to do this, if you don't mind. Please, yeah. In 2000 and <clears throat> July of 2008, I was working for the best commercial lender I have ever worked for. It's the best job I've ever had. I had a... A nice expense account. I had a good six figure income. I, I didn't overspend. I was still in a modest home. I had my cars paid off. Uh, but in July of 2007, I got the notice that our, our business is no longer going to make commercial loans. <laughs> and by then, uh, most of the mortgage companies uh, on the residential side had already closed down. So the, the business itself had shrunk to about 25% of its size. Um, here I was in, in my, I just turned 50 and I'm middle management in a business that shrunk <laughs> by 75%. What do you do? Uh, all my experience was in that. So I struggled with a, a, a few things ended up having to file for bankruptcy. Um, the last thing I did was ask my parents to lend me $2,500 so I could go get my commercial truck driver's license so I can make sure I make my mortgage payment. So I went out, got my license, went to work for this company that I was making like 28 to 30,000 a year. <laughs> and I was gone six days a week. I'd, you know, I'd, I'd leave on a, on a Friday. I wouldn't come back until Sunday night. <laughs> I'd have to go back again on Monday or I'm sorry, uh, Tuesday or so I'd, I'd get maybe a day and a half at home. And I was constantly on the road. It was awful. I was, I, I do have a personality. So eventually uh, I was hauling Husqvarna lawn equipment from a warehouse to another warehouse 
where these people were independent uh, importers and they had these two beautiful Peterbilt tractor trailers. I mean, gorgeous. They had chrome and all kind of stuff. And um, I'm delivering to these warehouses and I'm talking to the manager there every time I'm there. And uh, he said to me, well, I was talking to him about their trucks. He goes, you know, I, I think they're looking for a driver here. And so I immediately uh, went and talked to the owner and I got a job with them. And instead of going God knows where in the country in a truck every day, uh, I had a, um, I, I would leave home on a uh, Tuesday. No, I'm sorry. Thursday. I'd leave home on a Thursday. I would drive for uh, 11 hours. I would spend the night. I would drop off the load a couple hours later. Then I would drive another eight hours to another truck stop near Washington, DC. I would sit there for two and a half days at the truck stop watching satellite TV in my truck. And then I would pick up a load of freight from the airport and take it back to Charlotte. And I went from 30,000 to 75,000 for that job. <laughs> um, what, what really <clears throat> irritated me about this whole thing is that I had a really nice 401k in the stock market. I didn't want to uh, take any money out of the 401k because I'd have to pay penalties and, and uh, you know, you want that money to grow, but it was, in, it was in the stock market. And because I didn't take it out immediately, the value went down by uh, over half. I lost over half of what was in there just because the market crashed. Now, granted, if I'd have left it in there even longer, it would have eventually uh, have come back. But uh, again, we were struggling to even make our mortgage payments. My wife hadn't worked in 13 years. She went to work in a factory uh, doing what they call piecework. Uh, so uh, an item would come by, she'd put on a part, send it down the line. So, like I said, we were doing everything we could to uh, keep our mortgage payments up and, and to pay back what we needed to. Uh, my sister at the same time, who, who is my business partner, I had gotten into the mortgage business as well. She had to close her mortgage company um, and she ended up going to seminary school. So <laughs> again, here, here we are, uh, veterans of the mortgage business doing nothing close to mortgages. Uh, barely getting by and a real estate investor friend, because my sister is also a licensed uh, real estate uh, broker in two states. Uh, he had an idea because now there was all these homes that were for sale at next to nothing because um, the government uh, had backed these loans and they had what was called the HUD home store. So it was just a website that had all the foreclosures and when these homes were available for sale to the public after the foreclosure was finished, they would offer them to individuals for the first two weeks. And if no one got, if no one, you know, purchased them, they'd offer them out to real estate investors. So he would buy these homes, fix them up and then sell them. And so he, he was, you, you had to have a licensed realtor to do that. So he hired my sister to do that. In the meantime, we knew people that had uh, IRAs, 
that uh, they were self-directed and they needed a, a place to invest this money. And we knew people that needed to borrow the money to fix these homes up. <laughs> so we would take their money and we would broker it to these other folks and we would get the origination fee and the person that owned the IRA would get all the interest. And it turned, eventually it had turned into a business. Um, my sister convinced me to quit this uh, truck driving job, which at this point, and listen, I've been self-employed most of my adult life or I was commission only for most of my adult life. So having a salary and Having somebody else determine, uh, you know, my income and future was, I, I was not used to that. And what I really hated about myself when she gave me this offer was that I had gotten so used to nesting that I initially said, no, I, I'm not doing this. I've got this safety because, you know, I've got this job and benefits. And even though it stunk, I was always gone on the weekends when all the family get togethers were, it was a nice stable job and I just lost mine and I'm getting old. And anyway, <laughs> I finally said, you know what, <clears throat> this is not my personality. I need to do this. And so we, uh, fortunately this real estate investor friend, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, was almost like a business incubator for us. We were making loans to his students. So, um, he gave us the office space, the internet, the phones all for free, just to uh, help finance uh, his real estate investor students that were coming in and doing this. So, um, it, it was really a nice thing for him, but it also benefited him as well. And then eventually we got to the size where we ended up having to rent space from him because we needed more than the one office. And then we, from there, we bought uh, our own building and we've now converted that into a, uh, the, the building that we bought was a uh, Victorian farmhouse that was three blocks from the center of this little town that we're in now. And while it was already set up as an office space, it was in the historic district as a nice, beautiful little, you know, Victorian home. So we had our business there for a while. We bought another space because we ran out of room um, and it is in the uh, top floor of what used to be the original post office for the city that we're in. So it's this, this beautiful old building with all this marble and uh, history. Um, and we converted the other property into a duplex that we're doing short term rentals in and uh, our, our business couldn't be better now, but going through all that and understanding that I was a worker bee in the mortgage industry all this time, if I would have been a real estate investor and had been buying rental property all along, when the crash happened, I wouldn't have had to get a job as a truck driver. I would have had the passive income that would have sustained us, uh, until we decided to do something else. And I don't want that to happen to anyone else. It's not going to happen to me any longer. And this is why I'm so passionate about making sure that you can turn your active income into passive income, because once you have that passive income, 
based on solid assets. Uh, there's uh, no one or market condition that's going to take that away from you. You are truly independent and free to spend more time with your family, uh, do um, charity work, anything you want to. Uh, you don't. You don't have to do the job anymore. You do. You can do whatever uh, your passion is. And, and just so you know, <clears throat> these <clears throat> greedy real estate investor friends of ours that I'm in this mastermind with. When, when I was there um, about two weeks ago, <clears throat> this year we raised $500,000 for different charities that we're, we're all a part of. Everyone that's in this group is doing some sort of something to, to give back to the either local community. We build houses for folks in Mexico and uh, we feed or Oh, I am so sorry. I thought I had cut that off. <laughs> And I don't know how to do that. <laughs> okay. I fixed that. Pardon me. <laughs> no problem. That's one of the problems that you have when you have a uh, telephone that's attached to your computer. I have no phones. I have a website that does this for me. And I had logged out of it. And I even pressed on there that I was busy not to bother me. So I don't know. <laughs> You and I have a really good time with the technology, don't we? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so uh, what, what did you learn from all that? Um, you know, that, that's a good question. I learned that now how, no matter how low it seems, um, keep your head up and better things will happen. I, and listen, I, I learned, I don't know what I learned. <laughs> uh, I learned some humility. It's not that I was always a, you know, a butthead or anything when I was making money, but uh, it's interesting to see what other people have to do for a living. I, listen, I, I, my first job, I was 14 years old. I got fired when I was 16 because I, apparently I was supposed to have been 16 when I started that job. <laughs> And when I was passing around my driver's license to everyone, the owner got mad and fired me because I lied about my age. <laughs> but I've always worked uh, all my life. I've worked, you know, different jobs. So I, I have no problem with uh, getting my hands dirty. <clears throat> but um, what I learned from all this is that you need to be self-reliant. Uh, you need to <clears throat> be in a position where you're the one that determines uh, your income, uh, the time that uh, you want to spend with family and friends and who you want to spend time with, uh, you should be able to be in control of that. That's quite something. Cause you're saying this was about, you were about 50 at the time when you, you had to file for bankruptcy, right? Yeah. I'm, I'm 63 now. And that's to have to, to restart. I mean, that, that's, that's a big push for anyone, right? Well, it, yeah, it was scary, <laughs> but you know, you just don't give up. You, you, you persevere. And <clears throat> the reason I got a job driving a truck was because I could not get a job anywhere uh, because of my age. I was, every time I tried to get a job with a bank, the, the 20 something or early 30 something that was hiring me, say, well, you're used to way too much autonomy. You're not going to fit here. 
I mean, what do you do? And they were kind of right when they'd say, you're just going to be here until you find something better, which they're probably correct, but, um, how much use to you, right? But you know, how many people nowadays stay at a, a job more than a couple of years? Anyway, if you've noticed most people that are working, uh, in industry, they jump around. It's not like when, when I was, my dad worked for the same company all his life. You don't see that anymore. So who cares that, uh, I might've only been there a couple of years. That's probably the average anyway. But I think what most of them were worried about is that I had more knowledge and experience in their position than, than they did. And maybe it was a little off, off putting to them. But again, I got into the truck driving business because they needed butts in the seats. They didn't care how old you were. They just, <laughs> they just wanted somebody to drive. So it, it worked out well. And that driving the truck is a noble profession. It's stuff that needs to be done. Uh, plumbers, heating and air people, uh, electricians, carpenters. We don't have enough of those anymore. And that, that's part of the problem that we have now with the shortages that, uh, too many of the high schools, the primary schools, they, they tell you that you have to have a four-year degree or you're not going to amount to anything. If you have any business acumen at all and you get into a, one of the trades, you can be in it five years as an apprentice and you can own your own business easily. Uh, but, but, you know, a lot of people don't get that kind of an education. And frankly, college is not for everyone. Do you want it? I'll give you a, a quick example. Uh, one of my relatives um, graduated from a major university uh, in education, is a school teacher for elementary school kids. And I, I think her college debt was somewhere in the neighborhood of $150,000. <laughs> and you know, teachers do not get paid very much. How long is it going to take her to pay all this off? Now, it's something she loves to do and she has a passion for it. And that's great. But uh, do you really need to invest that kind of money in your education for something you're not getting that kind of a return from? Uh, this doesn't make sense to me. When you, uh, you get into a trade, you can easily uh, be an optimist. I'll give you another example. This is from one of my mastermind groups. There's a young man not too far from me. He's still in his 20s. He has a roofing company. Well, had a roofing company. He had a unique way of estimating what it would cost for a roof using a drone and some software and was really good at marketing online. And he sold that business for multi-millions of dollars. And he's just a guy that threw shingles on a roof. <laughs> so yeah, if you have any business acumen at all, uh, you can turn these trades into uh, uh, good businesses. That, that's the skill, isn't it? I mean, I, I you know, I, I totally get it that entrepreneurs become unemployable. You know, yeah. as you say, you, you get too used to your own autonomy. You get used to being flexible to do whatever you want to do, right? Um, sure. But then you, you go into the trade, the risk is then you exchange time for money in a different form, right? Because it's your business. So the next question is, how do you multiply your time for money? How do you make yourself 
um, the business work without you, right? So that, that's almost the next evolution of any tradesperson. You know, getting twenty dollars an hour is brilliant, or thirty, or fifty, or whatever it is. But then, how do you get multiple fifty dollars an hour? Because you can't be in three places at once, right? Systems, processes, and people. Um, we had the same problem with the the practice professionals, the dentists. They're doing the same thing. They're just highly paid technicians. If you if your business revolves around you, you don't have a business. You're just a highly paid technician. And that's one of the things uh, initially that we would teach them is how to turn your practice into a business. And, you know, the key is if you leave for a month, your business shouldn't miss a lick. <laughs> no, it's funny, the The typical retirement plan of a dentist was I'm going to work in this business until my back hurts so much. I can't bend over anymore, you know, in people's mouths. And then I'm going to sell my business to a young doctor that's just gotten out of school. With a fresh back. Again, the problem with that is if it's your business and everybody is coming to see you, then um, what's that business worth? Because there's no guarantee those patients are going to stay with the new doctor. So the only thing that business really is worth is the current employees, which may or may not like you either, <laughs> or, and the, the equipment that's in there. Or if you own the real estate you're in, uh, you could probably buy that too. Uh, but if you're a smart doctor and you create an actual business where you're hiring other doctors and you're just uh, the leader, not necessarily the cog, Um, and you can step back from that and you do own the real estate. So if you sell that practice, you can still rent the real estate, uh, out to the people that buy the practice from you. Uh, and that's become a big business. Now you've had a lot of your uh, insurance companies for dental insurance companies are going in and buying practices now a lot like the medical profession in the U S is that, uh, most MDs work for the hospitals and the insurance companies. They're not, they're not entrepreneurs. They're W2 employees, which is a, a really interesting shift, but your, your, your dentists, your veterinarians, uh, the medical professionals that do the, uh, we'll call it the vanity work, the, the vein clinics and the, uh, get these wrinkles out kind of places, you know, you're not getting a lot of insurance money for them. So they have to be entrepreneurs. Um, but it's the same thing. It's always about systems and processes. That's how you multiply yourself. You have to have, uh, uh repeatable systems and processes. There's nothing wrong with using uh, virtual talent, uh, wherever you can. We have, uh, we have a couple of people that are, not local that work virtually. We have several people that are uh, still contractors, but they're U.S. based contractors that we work with, uh, as well as you know folks within within the office. But that that's how you multiply yourself. I, I've gotten to the point now where <clears throat> I'm gone a week every quarter. I completely disconnect from texts and emails and just to get your head clear. And you can't, you can't do that if uh, you're trading time for dollars. I mean, uh, 
that does highlight a big a big shift in in the generations, right? I mean, we've gone from I know probably my parents' generation were a generation of savers, right? You know, you saved up for your car, you saved up for this. Now, now we're debt servicers. You know, we buy the buy the product or we get the the car, the Jeep, the house, whatever, and then we pay off the debt or we service the debt for as long as we can, or we service it till we can't, and then we hand it back, right? So we never actually own it. Everything is on subscription, everything's on interest payment, right? So it just seems weird that we've almost got ahead of ourselves. And then that's then fueling uh, you know, debt repayment into to companies. Well, <clears throat> there's another way you can do it. There's nothing wrong with debt as long as the debt is on an investment because then the debt becomes an asset. So if you're leveraging a rental property, for example, let's say you get a 30 year fixed rate mortgage on a rental property at 4% or 5% and you're in and you're making eight or 9% return uh, on that property, you're now paying, you're now, now you're paying back in current dollars, 10 years into the future, you think that dollar is going to be worth as much? No. So now you're paying past dollar worth <laughs> all the way to the end while your asset is increasing in value, what you're paying back is decreasing in value. Um, it works out pretty well. So that becomes an asset, that debt. What you don't want to do is you don't want to make a loan on stuff you want. You get a loan on stuff that uh, creates income for you or creates assets. So you don't want to get a loan on a depreciating asset. Here's what you do. You buy something that will give you enough income so you can make those payments if you are going to get a loan on. Does that make sense? You don't, you don't have to pay cash. You can get a loan, but make sure you have something uh, that is gonna pay you an income to offset that payment that you're gonna be making. Yeah. Does that help? <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely. It's, it's you, always you buy, buy cash flowing assets, right? And yeah. Yeah. What they say? You know, you, you invest in your assets and you spend on your liabilities, I think. Right. So uh, another way is you've got, <clears throat> in this country, you have a couple of, actually, I think there's four companies that will do universal life insurance that has cash value and you can actually add cash value to it. So what you can theoretically do, <clears throat> and this is what, <clears throat> excuse me, this is kind of what the Rockefellers did. They invested in their own <clears throat> family office, so to speak. <clears throat> Every child, I'm sorry, I'm getting off topic. <clears throat> I'll circle back around, I promise. So <clears throat> about every third generation of most uh, wealthy families they end up losing all their money about every third generation because the original generation made the money. The kids of those uh, parents still taught them hard work and, you know, to be something and, and they kind of continue on. And it's the grandkids that end up becoming the ne'er-do-wells and they just waste all the money. 
And so what they did over the generations is that they formed family offices. They got life insurance policies on every single child. And the family office was the beneficiary of the insurance policy. So you're going to have some that are going to be productive citizens. You're going to have some that are just a drag. So this allows for the, at least the people that were the drag to contribute back to the family office when they pass away. So that way they can continue with the generational wealth, at least help with it. So back to the insurance policies, there are insurance policies that will, let's say, guarantee you a four, four and a half percent return on your cash value. It also pays a death benefit, but it uh, has a cash value and it will pay you four and a half percent guarantee. You can borrow from your cash value at 5%. So now it's only costing you a half a percent reality because if you're borrowing against it, it's still making the four and a half percent because you're borrowing it. You're not taking it out. You're just borrowing against it. Okay. It's still making the four and a half percent. So now you got money that you, you're, you're borrowing at a half a percent essentially, but you charge yourself 5% and then you, you purchase that car with that. And you're essentially just paying yourself back. So now you're becoming the bank. So that's another way of doing it without having the income producing asset, uh, you know, to help with those debts. So th there's two ways there that you can still leverage uh, stuff you want, <laughs> stuff that is a depreciating asset uh, without having to pay cash for it. It's a, it's a, I mean, does money make money? Is, is that a true word that actually those that have? It should. Money should make money hmm. if you do it right. There's too many of us that just get it and want to spend it. I mean, listen, I'm guilty of it too. I have, uh, I have a pretty good size account with Amazon. <laughs> Every time you go by my house, there's a box out on the front porch. But you, you and half the countryside, right? Yeah. But, you know, on the big stuff, uh, you need to learn how to uh, leverage those things and, and do it properly. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's making it for you. I mean, is there any... I can't remember. I mean, here, and, and I, I don't know if it's the same, there's always some beautiful stories or, or sort of... You know, because I believe in the, you know, the talk about the power of 72. I mean, that was just something, it was a beautiful formula, quite simply yeah. for anyone that's, you know, that doesn't know it. So power of 72 was that every basically if you invest at 7.2%, that actually every 10 years, it doubled its doubled in value. Or if you yep. invest at 10%, it doubles its value in every 7.2 years. It was just this beautiful sort of mathematical number, right? You know, um, or I know here we have, uh, we call them ISIS. So it's child ISIS. And if you invested in your child from the year dot up until, and you can only invest, it's like two and a half or 3,000 pounds sterling <clears throat> up until their 18th birthday. By the time that's, by the time they're 50, that's a million dollar fund. Nice. You know? So we things like that, which actually, I don't know, for me, it just sits in the mind and you go into, you know what? is it a case that those that do and are consistent and repetitive and keep funneling away, are they the ones that ultimately are going to win the race? The tortoise always wins the race <laughs> <No one's laughs> because steady. it's not a sprint. Mm -hmm. It's a marathon. 
Um, the, the problem is uh, a, a lot of us don't start early enough. And then you're constantly having to uh, play catch up. Um, our, my generation, had, uh, I'm a baby boomer. So my generation uh, thought they're going to live forever and they never really got into saving when the way they should. Uh, they're either going to be depending on their kids to help them out um, or they're going to get lucky and not have a downfall before, you know, when they turn 50 <laughs> and have to start over again. Um, but you're going to see a lot of people that are going to be taking <clears throat> risky investments because they got behind <clears throat> and then uh, something's going to happen because that investment is risky. And they're going to end up losing about half of that. And they're going to be in tough, tough shape. <clears throat> On reflection, now looking back, I mean, do things happen for a reason? Do you think, I mean, had, you know, if you, you know, almost believe in karma or, or universal position, I mean, did you have to go through what happened to you to, 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 to declare bankruptcy at sort of 50 odd? Is that, was that part of your life? Is that supposed to have happened? Do you think? Uh, I would say yes. I, I was a W two employee, but I was a commissioned W two employee previously, and I, uh, I I did have this best job that I had. You know, it wasn't going to last forever. Um, I I'm so much more fulfilled with this uh, business than I am with that one because I'm helping before I was just helping business owners finance their property. <clears throat> now I'm helping business owners finance their properties. I'm helping neighborhoods to uh, regenerate and I'm helping uh, people become free. Uh, and I, I don't want to say save for retirement because it's not saving for retirement. It's changing their lifestyle. It's not saving. It's taking that money and becoming uh, passive income for them. And hopefully they'll never have to touch that principle again. And that's money that they can pass on to their heirs. They can take some of it and, uh, you know, build a legacy with, uh, no matter how they want to do that, everyone has a passion for something. And this allows you instead of, uh, you know, you never want to say retire, you're just going on to whatever your next is something that you're passionate about. <clears throat> and so, like I said, this is much more fulfilling than that other job would have. And frankly, if I didn't go through that, I would still be working for that same company doing the same thing. I, I tell you, I'm glad you brought that up. I, that, that was a great point that you made. When I was working for that company, I was about 30 pounds heavier. I was uh, happy where I was. Uh, I was making money. I'd work. I'd go home. I'd eat dinner. I'd have a few cocktails. I'd sit on my butt and watch television. I didn't care about learning anything new. <laughs> And now that I'm in this business and I'm surrounded by my peers who are constantly raising the bar for us, um, I may not be an avid reader, but I'm an avid listener. I spend 45 minutes each way in my car 
and I'm constantly listening to, you know, audible books. Uh, most of them, uh, self-improvement books. I'm best shape I've ever been in my life. And that's all, uh, part of the peer pressure with, uh, all these younger real estate investors who are all cut and I wasn't. And so now I, I'm almost cut <laughs> again. I'm 63, so I can't be cut like the 20 year olds, but, um, I, I'm still, when I, when I go to my, uh, boot camp classes a few times a week. I'm in there competing with 30 year olds and I'm, I'm usually out doing them. So I, I feel good about that. And again, none of this would have been uh, possible had I not gone through that. I would be in my complacent uh, couch potato mo mode. <laughs> There's something about okay and good. That's, that's deadly, right? Yeah just as you say when the job's there and it's like yeah it's okay it's good you know it just it never i don't know if that's an entrepreneurial thing i don't know if that's just nature and nurture but it's just when we're in a when we're in our comfort zone we're also at our laziest right we we just we get comfortable where we we sort of lose the need to push and fight and struggle and kick out and stretch and try, right. You know, because you're going, why would I, why would I upset this? But that's, right. it's almost, sometimes it's, it's, it's more devastating than a traumatic event, you know, because years go by. Right. And as you say, if this hadn't happened, I'd still be there, you yeah. know, and it's like the event and, and the rebound that you had, even though in your darkest hour, I'm sure it was bloody awful but actually sometimes your brightest moment comes from your darkest hour because you kind of go on, this has to work or this is changing, or this means something completely different to me now. Yeah. You know, it's that, that beautiful reflection. Um, you know, one of the, one of the benefits to being in this position now is that yeah, your peers constantly push you. They're constantly raising the bar and it, it's all in, uh, we, we do that with each other. And, and that's one of the beauties of this, but in our business too, you want to focus in on what your core business is, but if it wasn't for this group and, and again, COVID, uh, another black swan event that you didn't expect that was kind of a downturn for us. I mean, we, we did lose, uh, about 25% uh, revenue in 2020 because our, business kind of stalled for a, a few months. Fortunately, I'm in this group of great entrepreneurs. And just before then, it was funny, J January of 2020, we did an exercise that <clears throat> the headline would be, you've lost 50% of your revenue. What do you do? So we had to sit down uh, over that weekend and come up with a blueprint on what we would do step-by-step step if this happened. And then in March is when they shut everything down. We had no worries. We already had the blueprint and we lost 25% of our revenue that year. And our net profit was higher than 2019. <laughs> so it's, it's great to have these kind of uh, groups around you. Um, what it also did for us, it made us realize that we needed to diversify uh, what it is we do. Cause we were essentially at that point, a, a one trick pony. We made loans to real estate investors for, um, 
short-term acquisition and uh, you know refurbishing of these properties. And our our, our loans were either six months long, eight months long, or 12 months long. So we diversified uh, right after that. We um, partnered up with some institutional investors that allowed us to offer long-term rental financing. So that has added another, and we only started this in August. We've added another $8 million in revenue. Uh, I'm, I'm sorry, in loans, not in revenue. Um, to our uh, our business uh, since August, and then we started doing uh, these. We we call them small syndications. So we have friends and in business that are doing projects in self storage and multifamily, and we're able to do a small three to four million dollar capital raise as part of their uh, equity strategy, which adds additional revenue to, to, to our company, but also helps them raise the equity piece that they need. And then once again, our investors are able to, <clears throat> over that 36 to 60 months, get a guaranteed return because I'm doing it as a debt fund to them instead of the typical equity where you get a, a boost at the end, I'm giving them a guaranteed return. Again, I'm trying to keep it safe, but I can give them a, a higher return than, uh, than our, than our other fund. But unfortunately their money is locked in for a certain period of time. <laughs> so there's advantages and disadvantages to different funds. Some of them, you can get your money out in an emergency that may be a, a small penalty, uh, but some funds, your money is locked up for three, five, sometimes seven years, and you can't get to it at all. Uh, so, some of the things you need to consider when you're in, investing in different mm -hmm. funds. Different, but, like I said, different for everyone, isn't it? Though, but I mean, it does it does force a discipline, or also it it forces us, which as humans, quite often that's a good thing, right? Because we're saying, come hell or high water, that's unaccessible. So you have to do whatever you have to do. But this then forces the discipline to happen that that in itself is, is a gift. Yeah. Well, if you think about it, if it's a, if it's a retirement account that you're not touching for another 10 years, it's okay to use that money for those types of investments mm. because you're not touching it anyway. Uh, again, things happen. Um, family emergencies, you can get in it, with a 401k, you could cash that out um, if you had to. But if you have enough of an nest egg, chances are you're, you're probably not going to need that, that money anyway. Hmm. But you have to consider these in, in these investments. It may look like a great investment, but you can't get to that money for a certain period of time. You have to consider that. <clears throat> Excuse me. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's all. I mean, that's the beauty of, of investing, really, isn't it? You know, you, there's, there's all the options and, and there's highs, as lows, there's risks, all that, you know, but how, how do you change it? I mean, how do you, how do you make it better? Because you're saying even yourself, it's, it's almost too little too late, you know, before you realize that actually, if I had started this 10 years ago, is it down to education? Is it down to teaching kids, young people about the finance system, all the methods, is that what it's down to you? 
Yeah, we. Well, I don't know. I don't know about in Ireland, but in in the United States, we do a really poor job of teaching basic finance to our kids. I know when I was in high school, the only finance I ever got was how to balance a checkbook. <laughs> and that was it. It's a, it's a lot more complicated than that. And, you know, what's good debt and what's bad debt? Uh, you've got, uh, I can't remember his first name, Dave Ramsey. Uh, I don't know how popular he is uh, where you are, but, you know, he's preaching to the masses that you shouldn't have any debt. And while I agree that is a strategy for the masses, the people that are a little more advanced uh, should still use leverage, like I said previously, for assets, not liabilities, uh, not stuff you want, but stuff that you can make an income from, things that will eventually turn into an asset. Uh, that's how you multiply your wealth is by, if you go out and buy one home at a time and it, and you want, you know, 20 homes and you do one a year, that's 20 years. It takes you. <clears throat> if you can put yourself in a position to buy 20 homes in two years, you think you're going to get to that number a little quicker. <laughs> now at some point <clears throat> while all these are leveraged and you don't want to over leverage them, that's, that's the key. Uh, historically speaking, even during the crash, most of the country, and again, there's always exceptions, but most of the country, the values never went below 75% of those original values at the time. So if you're only going to leverage them at 75%, you're going to be in good shape in, in most economies. So you leverage as much as you can, you buy as much as you can with somebody else's money, you make sure that they're going to cash flow, even with the loans on them. And you're going to build wealth quicker and quicker. That's how you do it. You have to multiply your footprint. Now, if you're very young and you have time, 20 years to do one at a time and not do a lot of leverage, that's great. But uh, most of us at that age, frankly, aren't thinking about, you know, buying a bunch of rental properties. They're still thinking about finding a, a wife or a husband or figuring out what career they want. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but back to your initial question. Yes, we need some <laughs> financial education for our children. Um, they need to be much more savvy in, in, in finance and what to use and what not to use and what to be afraid of. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, that's a different sort of education, right? That's a, that's taking it to another level, which, and as you say, it's the, it's that generational thing. I mean, here we, it's a similar expression we have, you know, it takes, you know, one to make it one to take it one to break it. Right. You know, so yeah. first generation slogs gets this, gets them out of the, out of the trenches and they make something of it. The second one does, does something with it. They take it and they move it on a bit. And then the, the next generation breaks it because they don't understand the point or the purpose or the why. And, you know, um, and so it goes on, right. It goes through that cycle unless you, <laughs> unless you put policies against them, you know, um, which is quite a smart move, right? So, yeah. so we'll hedge ourselves. We'll hedge if you win and we'll hedge if you fail. So it's like, yeah. You know, but, yeah, I have a, a friend of ours who is uh, 
we'll just call them a trust fund baby. Um, she has a really nice size uh, real estate portfolio. And she's the one that built this up over time. But she also has a sibling that uh, unfortunately is constantly in and out of rehab uh, because, you know, that person was just living off the money in the family, didn't amount to nothing, didn't amount to anything other than just spending the money. So it, it, it definitely happens and it happens more than you think. And it's a shame that it does. What's, what's your opinion, if you don't mind me asking, on, on transfer of wealth? I mean, are you, you know, I hear so often, you know, people saying, well, I don't want my kids to struggle like I had to. I, you know, I want to set them up. But is that not the lesson that actually it's the, it's learning those lessons gets you where you are. If you potentially, if you just hand someone the, the asset, the thing, the whatever, right. They never sort of grasp the, the full benefit of the full intention of it. Right. Yeah. It's, it's, that's a tough uh, question. Um, everyone is a little bit different. Um, you're going to, you know, you can have a family of five and everyone is going to, every sibling is going to be a little bit different. You're going to have one that is going to take the lazy way out and you're going to have some that, uh, you know, want to forge their own way. <clears throat> um, you know, what do you do to me? You give it to them little at a time as they mature, make them <clears throat> work for what they want in the meantime. And as they mature, they may have, uh, this backstop, um, or you can put kind of limits on it. You have to make a certain amount before you get this <laughs> that way they have to, or you have to be in a, you know, a profession uh, of some sort that it may not need to be something that where you're making a certain amount of money before you can get the additional, uh, benefits from it. Because again, you don't want to keep people from, uh, also doing what they're passionate about. There are going to be some professions that you just don't make a lot of money in, but you're still doing good works. It shouldn't keep them from benefiting from that. But yeah, it's a, it's tough. I would, if it were me and I had tons of wealth, uh, I don't have any children, so I can't uh, really do this, but if, if it was me, I would, keep a certain amount aside for the family. And then the rest of it would go to philanthropic um, measures and build that, allow that to grow for the, the good of the community. There, there's nothing wrong with keeping a little money to help them out. But, uh, you know, if you're, if you're a billionaire <laughs> and you give all of it to your kids, really you've, you've kind of lost that incentive. You've lost the incentive for them. There's nothing wrong with giving them some and then doing some good with the rest of it because obviously you can't take it with you. Yeah, it's it's an interesting one. You know, people, you know, I know someone here locally who's very, you know, very wealthy, and they said, "I'll I'll pay for your education and I'll help to pay for your experiences, but I will not fund you, you know, financially." Right. And it's like, don't even think there's anything coming but I'll give you all the tools to do it for yourself, which I thought was a super interesting way of doing it. You know? Yeah. No, I, 
you got to respect them for that. It's, it's a good way of doing it as well. Um, I'm sure he'll want a little backstop for them later in life, but they don't have to know about it. <laughs> you can, you can always keep, keep that kind of a secret. Uh, maybe, maybe when they reach retirement age, they want to make sure they have the, the, the nicest assisted living facilities that they could. Because <laughs> if you if you end up with no children, you're going to you better be rich or you're not going to have anybody take care of you. That's it. It's down to you whether you want to or not. Right. So you got to you got to fund yourself whether you want to. Yep. Yeah. 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 So tell me, I mean, what's. <laughs> what what does fire in the valley mean to you bill what's what is it all about <clears throat> sorry um pardon me just a moment i'm going to sure. do the cough thingy i apologize so to me I, again it's the the passion to help others not go through what i went through i my, my biggest passion is helping those folks turn that uh, active income into passive income. But at the same time, for me, I'll, I have a passion for um, helping others, helping communities, uh, and helping small businesses. I, listen, I went to Ensenada, Mexico with, with a group from my real estate investor uh, mastermind. And we built uh, homes. We, we built two over the weekend. And when we got there, it was a slab of concrete and we built a house on top of it before we left. And it's heartbreaking to see what these people were living in before we built this. And now <clears throat> for us, we, we call them homes, but they're the size of where I would store my lawnmower uh, in my backyard. So they're not, you know, massive homes. Um, these folks down there save up to buy their own little plot of land. It's not, you know, this is not being given to them. They, they've bought their own little piece of land that they're living on, but their fences were made out of the springs from, uh, mattresses. So you'd have the box spring, uh, you'd take the metal out of them and they would use those as fence links <laughs> with hammered in pieces of wood. They found somewhere would be their fence posts or a PVC pipe that they would hammer in. Um, a lot of them were just tarps over top of, you know, sticks coming out of the ground dirt floors. Uh, they'd have a, they, they did have electricity out at the front, but it's, you know, like a drop cord to a hot plate, you know, inside of that. Um, it, it really, when you go in there, you, you build a house for folks. You, what, what really got to me is the little kids are out there with big smiles on their face. They do not understand that they're living in poverty. They're just happy to be kids. Uh, we bring soccer balls with us so they could they could play while they're out there. We we have them help paint, and they end up painting themselves more than the house. Uh, they were just uh, a joy to be around. And then the 
you know, you could easily write a check for charity, but when you get down there and do it and you're around the people, uh, I, I tell you, it really makes you appreciate what you have when you get back. Um, when someone is irritating me in traffic, I have to think to myself, you know, this is uh, a first world problem that I'm having here. I've just experienced what real problems are. <laughs> get over it and move on. So uh, I'm very passionate about uh, help helping others too. And there's plenty of people that need help here in our country. But I'm telling you, the people that need help in our country would be uh, wealthy in some of these areas that we go to. There is a dichotomy too, right? Because whilst they have less financially, quite often they're actually emotionally and, and you know, they're, they're generally, well, they can, not generally, I mean, they, they can be happier. Yeah. There's, there's an irony, all right. You know, they have less, but they are spiritually, emotionally, whatever they, they have more. Yeah, you're, you're right about that. And family is very important uh, to them, which it should be in most places. But uh, when you're, you're struggling financially, uh, you really have to pitch in uh, to do the normal daily chores you need to get done to, you know, exist. And it's, uh, it's fun to be around those folks. It, it really is. Mm. Almost everybody down there had a, although I don't speak the language, um, everyone was smiling <laughs> all the time. It really surprised me. However, it was, um, a little off-putting seeing the pickup trucks with the 50 caliber machine guns mounted in the back. <laughs> it's a different government than I'm used to. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. As you say, I mean, it's first of all problems, right? And we get an appreciation that that contrast is, um, it brings an awareness or an appreciation. Yeah. Maybe I think it's probably where it's Absolutely. at, you know, where it's at. Bill, tell us where can people reach out to you? Where can they follow you, hunt you down, get more information? Sure. Thank you. Um, our website is carolinahardmoney.com. And we have an investor tab. If people are interested in investing, there's a tab there for our YouTube channel. Uh, my sister and I, and uh, one of the other partners, we do a live stream uh, every week and we teach real estate investing concepts. Uh, we have other fund managers like us, uh, but in different spaces of the real estate, come on as guests and talk about what it is that they're doing. And, and, and none of it is really selling their products. It's teaching you how to do your due diligence on uh, these types of uh, products and services. Uh, we, we cover everything from long-term and short-term rentals to, you know, in investing in, uh, all kinds of different uh, commercial properties. Uh, we try to do it with a little bit of humor. Uh, we don't take ourselves very seriously. And again, we're very passionate about teaching people this business, whether you want to do it on your own or you want to invest with someone. Uh, so it's got all, all that information on there. If you want to, my email is bill at carolinahardmoney.com, but you can find everything on the website. Awesome. Bill, is there a final message you'd like to leave with our listeners today? 
I know I already said this message before, but I, it, it stands repeating. The house doesn't care what it's worth. <laughs> it's all about the income it produces. Um, yeah, really just start thinking about uh, stuff that you want to finance because it's, it's stuff you really want. Do you really need the new car or can you repair the old one? Um, if you have to borrow money for something, the best thing to do is to try and use that money to find something that pays you to offset the payments that you would have, mm. uh, turn that active income into passive income as soon as possible. So you can be financially free as soon as possible, because the one thing you can't get back is time. And as soon as you're financially free, you are free to uh, do things with people that you want to do when you want to do it and with whom you want to do it with. How's that? <laughs> Beautiful. Lots of nuggets in there that people will get, you know, and as you say, it's yeah, time you can't get back. So make the most of it. That's what it's all yep. about. Absolutely. Bill, listen, thank you so much for coming on and sharing. It's been uh, awesome to, to hear from you and all the, the lessons. And, you know, hopefully you know, people will talk more about money, you know, and people will sort of think more about it as opposed to drifting. So, um, yeah, time's precious. So thank you. Thank you for your time. Thank you. I appreciate yes. you sharing your knowledge. Thanks so much for having me on. And I'm glad the audio uh, worked out this time. It was a, a pleasure being on with you. Have a, have a wonderful day and uh, have a great Christmas. Thank you. I appreciate you. All right. Take care. Well, that was another great episode of Fire in the Belly. You know, this really wouldn't be possible without our great guests taking the time to share their personal journeys. And boy, oh boy, sometimes it is personal. It's an absolute pleasure to have that and then to hear the journeys that the people have been on. We've loads more episodes coming up soon and it's always a pleasure to have guests on. If you do happen to know anyone with true fire in their belly, please reach out to us so we can share their journey, lessons and successes. So all that's left to say is have a great day, live with fire in your belly and be the mightiest version of you.